Welcome to Crohn's and Colitis Perspectives on ReachMD. This series is produced in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, providing updates and driving innovation in IBD research, education, and clinical support. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and I'm with Dr. Adam Ehrlich and Dr. John Bedridge. We're going to be talking about inflammatory bowel disease, issues surrounding it, but most importantly today, we're going to talk about preventive care and why preventive care is so important. First of all, welcome to the program. Thanks a lot. Pleasure to be here. One of the things I know that keeps coming up again and again in conversations and in the research is the role of micronutrients and deficiencies in micronutrients in IBD. Tell me a little bit about it. So micronutrients are, if you think of nutrients as macronutrients as carbohydrates, proteins, fats, you know, things that we get energy from, micronutrients are essential parts of our diet that are more like vitamins and not always vitamins, but you can think those. And in inflammatory bowel disease, inflammatory bowel disease patients are at particular risk for being deficient or insufficient in some of these micronutrients, specifically iron, vitamin D, and in some cases others like B12. You know, one of the things we don't do a lot, at least I know in primary care, is screen perhaps as much as we should be thinking about this. Are there efforts in education to try to help, and how important is the screening? Yeah, so I mean, I think partially it depends on which of the two diseases you have, right? So B12 is absorbed in the terminal ileum, and so if you have Crohn's disease affecting that area, you might not be able to absorb it as well, and you might be low. Ulcerative colitis patients don't have generally B12 deficiency because they don't have a problem with the absorption in that location. So for me, when I see a new patient with inflammatory bowel disease, especially Crohn's, I'm checking a B12 level first time. If they've had terminal ileal resection, a part of their ileum resected, therefore they're not able to absorb the B12 there, I'm checking it in those patients. And I'm routinely checking iron and, and vitamin D at least once as well. So you're looking at those things, and it's part of your routine. What about somebody in primary care? Should they be doing it as well or leave it to you, or what, what is your recommendation? I think whatever works, and I think it's a collaboration always between myself and my primary care providers in my area. And I think a lot of them in my area prefer that I do it because I have, like Dr. Ehrlich was saying, is depends what you have and what your history is. And so I may do more screening in, with regards to micronutrients in some patients. With active disease, for instance, I check their iron more often if they've been flaring versus someone who doesn't. And I'm really the one who knows that. So in, in general, I take, I take responsibility for most of, most of that type of screening or evaluation. And, and again, in talking about the role of iron, it's something you can make a difference as you do it, as you measure. What, what do you suggest as far as that? Do you check and give iron supplements, take it away? What do you do? Right. So I think that's an important gray area and, and actually something that probably a lot of us do differently. But I think that one thing in my practice over the last five years that's changed the most is effectively screening for and treating iron deficiency anemia. We do know from research that patients who have their iron deficiency and or anemia addressed have a higher quality of life with inflammatory bowel disease. So I think that in general, I think if a patient is stable and and in remission, I check once a year. However, if they're flaring and I'm making changes to their care, then I'm going to check every three months or at, at a minimum every six months and address it. If they're moderately or severely anemic, I may use iron infusions to address their iron deficiency. Someone with a mild anemia, an iron deficiency, anemia, then I might prescribe oral iron supplements and then recheck later after some treatment. Dr. Ehrlich, while we're talking about screening and things, what about osteoporosis, osteopenia? Are they things you're looking at as well? Sure. I want to add, if I could, just about anemia. I think, you know, there are a number of reasons why an IBD patient might be iron deficient. 
number one, they might not be eating much because they don't, they feel terrible, you know, so is it a dietary thing? Are they not absorbing it? Do they have upper GI tract Crohn's disease? The, the iron gets absorbed in the duodenum. If the duodenum is affected, you might not be able to absorb it. But probably the most common reason is from inflammation. If you have a lot of inflammation, your body is just not absorbing iron. You can take all the oral iron pills that you want, but it's not going to do much besides cause some GI upset. So I think we have to understand what the underlying cause of the anemia is, and therefore we can treat it. So if you may need IV iron if they're severe, but also if they're not absorbing well. And then move it on, yeah, to the osteoporosis. Yeah, so the osteoporosis. So the most common reason probably in the adult patient population for osteoporosis is steroid use. And we see patients who have been on multiple courses of steroids over long periods of time, and we know that those patients are at risk for developing osteopenia and osteoporosis. So there are some guidelines in the GI world about who to screen with DEXA scans, but most of my patients, I'm getting it at least once. I saw someone today with had multiple courses of steroids in the past, they're getting a DEXA scan to see where they are. They're young, generally speaking, and there's something we can actually intervene on early to prevent fractures, you know, 30, 40 years down the road. Following up a little bit on the, we go from infection or follow up, maybe go to infection. I was thinking about some of the risks that they might be at. For instance, pneumonia. Is that a concern for people with IBD? Yes. We know that patients with inflammatory bowel disease and active disease regardless of what medications they're on, have a higher risk for pneumonia, especially Crohn's patients. However, inflammatory bowel disease patients on immunosuppressing medications, and this is a disease of one's immune system. So most of our effective therapies for moderate to severe disease all involve some sort of suppression of the immune system to some degree. And some medicines more than others will suppress the immune system. Corticosteroids are probably the, the most profound, and, and certainly patients with, on those medicines are at risk for pneumonia. We know for sure that they, they're at higher risk. And then other things like anti-TNF biologics, uh, direct-acting immune suppressants like methotrexate or, or azathioprine. So in general, I do try to identify all patients who are either likely or are on immune suppression for inflammatory bowel disease. We know that uh, vaccination for pneumonia is, is helpful helpful and does prevent pneumonia with streptococcus pneumoniae, which is a very common, but also a common cause of severe pneumonia. It doesn't cover all types of pneumonia. It doesn't prevent all pneumonias, but it could help keep someone out of the ICU or out of the hospital. And it's a series of shots. So patients who are immune suppressed, according to the Centers for Disease Control, should receive the 13-valent pneumococcal vaccine. And then a short time later, usually about two months, receive the 23-valent pneumococcal vaccine. And then a booster five years later of the 23-valent. Go back with the 23. Yeah, yeah, five years later as a booster if they're immune suppressed. What about if they're immune suppressed, like a shingles vaccine, like a non, I guess, basically you might want to not go with the live form, obviously, right? Right. So the shingles vaccine that was available up until two months ago or so was a live virus. And so that was one that was, we tried to avoid in patients that were immunosuppressed. The new vaccine that was approved in the last month or two is a non-live virus. And so while there are not yet formal guidelines on using it in IBD patients, I suspect that will become a routine thing, and we should probably be using it in all of our patients. Now, skin cancer is also an issue, I understand. I guess maybe is that partly because of the meds and the things they're taking and it increases risks? 
Yeah, there, there seems to be actually a, an independent association with inflammatory bowel disease patients and developing certain types of skin cancer. So just having the disease Without even considering the risk. meds. Okay, Correct. so they're at risk. Um, but then on top of that, we know that some of the medicines that we prescribe can increase the risk as well. So okay. the thiopurine medications, azathioprine and Imuran and 6MP, can increase the risk generally of non-melanomatous skin cancers, basal and squamous cell cancers. And there seems to be an association with the anti-TNF biologics with possibly increasing the risk risk of melanoma. And so any of these patients that are on immunosuppression should be getting yearly skin exams by a dermatologist. Obviously, I'm somebody who's always preaching about not smoking, so everybody should quit smoking. But why in this group is it so important to quit smoking? One other thing about the skin cancers, and I think it's important to note, is uh, a lot of patients will have trouble getting in with their dermatologist. And I think you, as a primary care doctor, you could probably attest to this, that mm-hmm. if they came to your office for a skin exam, I think that that is if they can get in with their primary care doctor. And also, I try to encourage self-examination and an idea for this and just a heightened awareness about these things can be very important. Obviously, if you can get in with a dermatologist for a yearly skin exam, right, that's but ideal. But I agree, but that's a great point because you know sure. most of us are trained to, any if we recognize something that we're concerned about, we can always get them in quicker exactly. if there's a suspicious mole or something like that, but we'll pick it up. Or even take a biopsy. Maybe yeah, you take can a biopsy, biopsy. Right, exactly. in, in your office, so sure. I think that's important. And the smoking, especially in Crohn's disease, I talk to patients about it. It's one of the few things you can personally Absolutely. do to make your Crohn's better or at least keep it from being worse. And it really is such a strong, important factor for any number of things, especially in Crohn's disease, that are going to harm a patient, more likely to be hospitalized in smokers, more likely to require surgery in smokers, more likely to have need for a second or third surgery in smokers. And uh, disease flares are more common. And actually, we know some data that if they quit smoking in about two years' time, that they we can already show a decrease in the number of flares of, of active disease in that individual who quits smoking. So it's paramount. And it's something that I think it's a hard thing because quitting smoking is so difficult, but it's really another thing I talk about is getting back on the horse because it really takes a lot of of tries to effectively quit. And for every time you try and fail, getting that much closer, getting back on the horse and and quitting smoking is is essential. I've seen it with patients also, if uh, the younger patients with colitis, who if they go out and they're not eating as well and they're out with their friends drinking or whatever, they seem to be more likely to have flare-ups at that time too. Is there a link between the diet and alcohol and going out and and increasing those chances? Yeah, you know, the the thing about diet is it makes logical sense that the diet's going to affect IBD in some way, either as a a predisposing factor, as as an exacerbator. We don't have great data that particular diets either cause IBD or exacerbate IBD. There are definitely folks that have certain sensitivities and say, you know, the common example would be a Crohn's patient who has a stricture. You want to avoid high-fiber foods, roughage, and things like that because that's going to be harder to digest. But I have a real hard time telling patients, hey, you should avoid this or you should eat that because I don't have a lot of great data. I say a lot of it's experimentation, you know. What might be great for you might not be good for someone else. And I have tons of patients that I can point to and say, I feel terrible when I eat salad. And the other guy says, I feel great when I eat salad. You know, So it's so hard to know ahead of time where someone's going to be. I don't know if you have that experience. I agree. I think with diet, it's, it's tough because it makes perfect sense that what you put in your body will affect this disease, this immune system disease that affects your gut and your digestion. However, digestion is so complex. And individuals have a diet that typically is is fairly complex. And what works for one person is going to maybe not work for others. And there's so many other factors. What I tell patients in general, I try to say, you know, sure, you know, eating healthy makes sense. So let's try to focus on eating well, meaning a diet focused on lean protein, avoiding excess sugar, avoiding excess fats. 
the same things that are going to make any person feel upset to their, their stomach or have upset digestion is going to probably affect you even worse. So if you could, you know, get the nutrients we talked about and make sure that you're, you're eating because you have this inflammatory condition, your body needs that energy right. to, right. you know, to, to deal with this disease without trying to be too exclusive because I find mostly that's the big problem. Right. Patients try to exclude things and they end up losing weight, becoming iron deficient sure. and having other problems. We only have a short time left, but I think one of the big things is this is probably new to a lot of people thinking of all the preventive ways, putting it together in one segment like this, talking about it. Are there resources, places people can go to for help? So first of all, talk to your doctor. Okay, so if you're, if you're a patient with inflammatory bowel disease, your GI doctor is one of your best resources. Your primary care doctor is one of your best resources. The Crohn's and Colitis Foundation has a ton of resources for everything, preventive care and you know, support groups and information about your medications. And, and that's where I direct folks in almost all circumstances. First visits with them, get a little card about the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. You it's a good resource for them. Yeah, for sure. And what about for providers? Can, I mean, the primary care providers to find out things. Right. So I think, you know, same resources are tremendous, mm-hmm. you know, for providers, both gastroenterology providers and primary care providers. I think it's important to remember that uh, as gastroenterologists, a lot of us who we talked about at the beginning may, may be doing some, a lot of this for our IBD patients. And there's mnemonics. One thing I did when I was doing a little more teaching was that there's something called IBD hints that we just use to touch on a lot of the stuff we talked about here. We, you know, that's been published in the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Journal earlier this year. But there's others. There's guidelines in the American College of Gastroenterology for preventative care and IBD that came out last year that is excellent resource for providers, and they can find these online or in print form. Dr. Adam Ehrlich, Dr. John Betteridge, one last question. What didn't I bring up that you wish we had talked about or at least end the interview discussing? I would say, you know, one of the most important things that I think is overlooked is the relationship between the GI and the primary care doc. A lot of our patients are young. If they see a primary care doctor, maybe it's once a year because they need a physical or something and they're not getting routine primary care like potentially some of our older patients. And it's hard to know for me sometimes, you know, I say a patient, hey, go get your pneumonia vaccine if they're going to their primary care doctor or not. And so I think communication between the primary care doc and the GI is something that we really need to focus on. And I need to probably do a better job also of calling the primary care doctor and say, hey, can you make sure they get this or make sure you check that to make sure the patients are getting the best care they need. Right. Anything else? I would second that for sure. And I also think that every once in a while it's, it's, it's great to stop and think and ask your patient, what are your concerns today? What's your biggest concern? And I found so many times that some of these things that we're talking about, about uh, screening for cancers and things like that, they'll have family members who may have also had IBD that had a skin cancer or developed a colon cancer or had an, an, you know, another problem. And they you have questions and, uh, you know, and answers, whether it be about diet and nutrition or whatever, that maybe in my focus to how are you feeling today? How many bowel movements did you have? Those kinds of things. You know, you know, how are you doing on your medicine? Maybe that we're not. I'm not not exactly getting at. So, always taking a step back and making sure that a patient doesn't have concerns outside of the direct day to day. How are your symptoms today? Is something that I find that could always be you know touched on again in the office. Well, Dr. John Betteridge, Dr. Adam Ehrlich, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and thank you for taking the time to listen. The preceding episode was brought to you in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. If you have missed any part of this discussion or to find others in the series, visit ReachMD.com slash foundation.